Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to the podcast, it's Owen Jones here. So, Second Thought is a very, very big American left-wing YouTuber, and I'm really fascinated with them because they are much younger than me, and they really, I think, have resonated with a very broad layer of progressive American youth. They're helping to politicise American youth. So I'm going to talk about that, about what's happening with younger Americans and their politicisation, about the rise of the US left. But I also want to talk about issues like US imperialism, for example. Uh, We're going to talk about the nature of the Biden administration. We talk about a lot, basically, which I think is very interesting. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash omenjones84 three quid a month or whatever just to keep the team the show on the road you can give off a one-off donation in the the description of this podcast and also please subscribe and you know leave us some stars and with that said please listen to the podcast what an honor hello here you are we're here together on the screen how are you doing my friend doing very well thanks for having me it is a, it's a great honor very popular request because you are I'd say one of the key in the constellation of left YouTube, a burning star. Oh, shucks. Slightly corny thing to say. I'll realized. take it. <laughs> uh, what What's the function? What, what 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 When When you started doing it, what What were you setting out to do? What 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 kind of kind of purpose do you see yourself as as, as trying to push on on the YouTube format? Yeah. Um, well. When I started YouTube, I was doing something, you know, completely different, just doing the, you know, general interest science stuff. Um, but then when I made my switch to to more political content, um, I was just kind of fed up with, especially with how things were going in the U.S. This was during, you know, the peak of the first wave of, of COVID. And uh, I saw how poorly we were handling it. Um, it's like, well, no one's talking about this. I guess I should do it. And because I was, I was tired of making my old stuff. I was a little burned out. It's like, well, I can either give this a shot and risk torpedoing my channel, or I can keep making stuff I'm not enjoying. Um, so I, I took the risk, and it, it paid off. People liked my stuff. It resonated with them. Um, and my, my goal since then has been really to introduce um, socialist ideas to people who may not be familiar uh, with the terminology or with the history um, and do it in a way that's that's not condescending, that's not full of jargon. Um, it's friendly and it's approachable, um, and I think I'm doing an okay job at it. Capitalism. This is something you've been you did. A, you've been doing lots of videos about capitalism, and mm-hmm. this is fascinating because, of course, the U.S. is you know free market capitalism ideologically so was so hardwired. Capitalist yeah. realism. Mark Fisher, the late political theorist, called it and. Yeah. He summed up as the idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah. And of course, in many Western states, actually, capitalist realism for a long time was challenged. In Western Europe, you had large 
capital C communist parties. You had social democratic parties which spoke about socialism. You had strong labor movements. You had leftist movements. And the United States, you have exceptions during the 1960s. You had Students for Democratic Society, which were a leftist organization. But it was relatively peripheral and ideologically. Yeah. There's this idea of being American and capitalism as seen as oh, yeah. time. That shifted. And the polling shows that favorability of capitalism amongst millennials and Zoomers, so Generation Y and Z, people born after 1980, has, has fallen. Yeah. What's going on? Well, I think the main thing is it just doesn't work anymore for people like us, uh, for people, you know, I was born in 93. Um, so people my age and, and younger, those who are just coming into the to the labor market now, the Zoomers, bless their little hearts, they're in for a rough time. Um, we've seen things that our, our parents and grandparents took for granted, uh, you know, slowly stripped away. So, you know, vacation time is not what it used to be. It's impossible to get a pension, a company car, uh, parental leave. I've never seen that offered. Um, things like 401k matching, stuff like that. It's, it's things that you would expect um, when you provide your labor to an employer. Those things don't exist anymore. And as the cost of living has risen, you know, everything from groceries to rent, um, you would hope that uh, wages would increase with it, but that's not the case. Um, if anything, wages, real wages have gone down or remain stagnant at best. And so people are just being priced out of everything. You can't afford um, a one bedroom apartment. Someone working minimum wage job cannot afford a one bedroom apartment in 95% of counties in the US. And 100% of counties, if you're looking for a two bedroom, it's just not possible. Um, so I think that's the, that's the main thing. People are, you know, post 2008, uh, Great Recession, there was a little bit of cynicism uh, introduced back into the landscape about, uh, well, does, does the system really work? Like it's working for these these really rich people, but it's not, I don't see any of the benefit. And I think the further we, we go and the more people enter the job market and, and just kind of flounder, um, it's becoming more and more apparent that the system that we have right now does not work for the vast majority of people. And I think because America is so staunchly gung-ho about, hey, this is a capitalist country. People are like, okay, if this is a capitalist country, I don't think I like capitalism. I mean, the way I, I wonder what you think about this is, you know, Thatcherism, Reaganism had mm -hmm. this, they actually had a populist incarnation of what they were trying to do, which was, we will liberate the individual from the dead weight of the state and collectivism, and that will provide them with freedom. Yeah. But, the lived experience of of that, particularly for people born after 1980, was insecurity. And insecurity mm -hmm. isn't freedom. So being stripped of a secure job, having a hat, you know, in terms of housing insecurity, living standards, all of that, you know, a, a social security net, which has been shredded. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's what's happened is the promise mm -hmm. of freedom which did, I mean, I, I'm obsessed and people get bored of me talking about this, but younger Americans and younger Britons did flock to Thatcherism and Reaganism. Oh, Reagan yeah. had a big support amongst younger people who are now older in the 80s and Thatcher won the youth vote in 1983. Yeah. That's completely different today. Their equivalents are more like to support Bernie Sanders or, or Jeremy Corbyn back in the day. So what do you think? Is that what it is? Free, freedom is insecurity under the yeah. 
Yeah, I'd say we're offered freedom in name only. Like it's what good are these freedoms, these individual freedoms, if you don't have the means to pursue them? So if you don't have the means to take a vacation or um, pay your way through college uh, or, or buy a house or buy a car or anything like that, if you don't have the means to do that, you're not really free to do it. Like you're not really free to pursue another job or a career change or go back to school if doing so would, would force you into poverty or precarity. So the idea of, of having these freedoms is nice and very appealing. And I think it, it still is appealing to a lot of people, but it has to be achievable. It has to be actual freedom, not just freedom on paper. And that is something that our current capitalist labor landscape does not allow. That's not real freedom if you can't, if you don't have the means to pursue it. Before we talk, we'll talk about the labor movement, about the climate emergency, but I'm interested, obviously, in terms of we've seen the events in Afghanistan over mm. the last few weeks. And, you know, if we look at the so-called, I suppose, war on terror, if we use it as an all-encompassing term, you know, whether it be the number of people killed by terrorist acts uh, more than doubled after the so-called war on terror was declared, uh, whether it be the calamities of Iraq, uh, of Libya, of Afghanistan, uh, just being the latest. Where does this leave American imperialism, do you think? Because obviously we saw what happened in the Vietnam War uh, in the 70s, and that, that mm. was a big shock for American power at the time. Neoconservatism yeah. rose in the 70s partly because of a widespread sense of American decline, and the neocons started in the Democratic Party, which is often erased from history. But, it, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union gave a shot in the arm, which yeah. kind of tapered over that decline. Where do you think we're at with U.S. imperialism now? How significant is what's just uh, what's just happened and, and how do you see it? Well, I think it was a long time coming. I mean, regardless of what president initiated this you know, withdrawal, it was going to have the same result. I mean, we never our intention was not to go in there and stabilize and, and provide support for a local government to stand on its own two feet. Our intentions as always were you know enrichment enrichment primarily of the military industrial complex uh companies like raytheon lockheed and boeing things like that um and the politicians who benefit from their massive corporate donations um one statistic that i think is very telling is that we went in there and um they had u.s soldiers guarding the poppy fields that poppy was used to make opium and heroin um and Purportedly, they were there to to guard those fields and put a dent in the drug trade, which was very lucrative. Um, instead, production of opium tripled under the U.S. watch. So either they are, you know, completely incompetent when it comes to guarding flowers, or we were cutting ourselves in again on a lucrative illicit trade. And that wouldn't be the first time that the U.S. has um, dabbled in drug running. So it... For anyone who's been paying attention, it, it should be very clear that our goals in Afghanistan were, were not the spreading of freedom and democracy. It was not for stability. Uh, it was for maintaining empire. It was for keeping a an iron grip on a far-flung region of the world that is you know, far from the average American's uh, daily life. It doesn't affect us really in any way, um, and it's a good way to maintain a constant you know, simmering low-level war, which which feeds the military-industrial complex, which is our largest industry. Um, and now that the 
stuff we're seeing, the coverage now, you know, teary-eyed U.S. soldiers and pictures of them holding babies and stuff like that. It's just trying to save face. So it's imperialism has been dealt another blow um, in terms of optics. But as far as uh, the U.S.'s capabilities to maintain that imperialist stance in the rest of the world, I think it's largely unchanged and it's something we need to keep an eye on. What do you make of what's going on currently with not just Republican attacks, but many Democratic politicians? Atta- I mean, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden is someone traditionally yeah. very much associated with the Democratic establishment, uh, pretty hawkish mm-hmm. background in terms of military foreign uh, policy. I did a video with Jeremy Scarhill, which detailed the, the militarism of Joe Biden's history. And yet yeah. here we are. Joe Biden overseeing the withdrawal from Afghanistan, denouncing forever wars. It should be said in the Obama administration, it, it, he, he was deemed to be relatively skeptical of U.S. Mm-hmm. involvement in Afghanistan. And there was a sense that the U.S. generals, um, the U.S. military brass, deceived, actually, whatever we think of Obama and all the rest. I mean, it doesn't reflect well on him. Uh, they, 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 they fed lines which didn't reflect the reality on the ground in Afghanistan. Yeah. But we can see now this kind of, you know, it's not just the Republicans, but also Democratic politicians. It's having an impact on public opinion. I mean, mm-hmm. his approval ratings are falling. What do you make of all of that? And what, from, from a left perspective in America, what does this mean? Because, you know, our guy was Bernie Sanders. It certainly yeah. was not Joe Biden. No. Well, I think what a lot of people are starting to realize is there's really not much that uh, that much distance between Democrats and Republicans. I mean, they're both beholden to the same corporate interests. And at the end of the day, no matter the flowery language they use, they're going to pursue policies, both at home and abroad, that make those corporate donors happy. So most of the time, that's meddling in foreign affairs, um, whether that's in you know Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Latin America. It, it's always the same story there, regardless of who, uh, you know, which party is in power. Um, And I think the American public is beginning to catch on. I think the problem that the left sees is that it's leading not towards uh, necessarily an acceptance of of socialist politics and, and, you know, inclusive people-based policies, but more of a reactionary stance against, you know, the elite, and I'll, I'll use the words the elite myself, but it that often comes with very racist baggage, um, and it, it can funnel people to the right, unfortunately, just as easily to the left. So that, I think, is something that we on the left need to watch out for as people become disillusioned with um, both Democrats and Republicans, the mainstream politicians. We need to make sure to offer an alternative that is inclusive that is progressive um, and that does not rely on uh, bigotry of any sort, which is um, which is quite a risk here in the U.S. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In terms of the strategy of the US left now, what, how do you see it in terms of, I mean, we've, got, we've seen the, you know, the so-called squad um, within the uh, Democratic Congressional Caucus, double, these are the, the kind of left-aligned uh, section, led most notably Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but joined by a number of others. How do you think left strategy relates to that caucus? Uh, but how do you think it relates more widely in terms of all the rising movements, Black Lives Matter, for example, and and you've done videos in, on this on, on a potentially resurgent labor movement. How mm-hmm. do you see the US left strategy in 2021? Well... I mean, things have been moving very quickly since, you know, 2015 or so. Um, There was very little left momentum to speak of before um, Bernie's first campaign. I mean, you had 2008, um, which kind of kick-started a bit of um, anti-capitalist sentiment. And then that was kind of more or less codified in in Bernie's campaign. And he, because he was the one who came out and railed against the, the executives um, and the people responsible for the financial crash. And then he was also the only one who spoke about the underlying structure of the system that enabled that crash. Um, and that has been incredibly helpful to the left to, to help uh, young people, especially kind of understand um, the language of class consciousness and class warfare, which has been forgotten over the last, you know, 100, 120 years or so. Um, that being said, as we, you know, as we come towards the end of 2021, we've seen a lot of, of left failures in, uh, in electoral politics like Bernie, bless his heart. I mean, I wish he'd won, but Bernie's about as moderate as it gets for a socialist politician. You could plop him in an election elsewhere in the world and he wouldn't be considered a socialist at all. And here in the U S he's considered, you know, some crazy communist. So, if we can't even elect the most milquetoast moderate social Democrats, I don't know that electoral politics is the best way to spend our time. I think it's important to, you know, go out and vote if you feel like that's what you need to do. Um, you never know. It, we might, with Gen Z coming up, we might get enough momentum to get, uh, you know, a decent politician in, uh, in the presidency. Um, but, I do think it's more important to focus on grassroots move, grassroots movements like uh, Black Lives Matter um, or the labor movement. You see a lot of labor activity with uh, with mining recently. We had the, the Alabama miners who came and uh, have been on strike in New York for over four months. Um, so 
that I believe is what has has been missing in the U.S. is a, a militant labor movement. You know, Black Lives Matter was not explicitly socialist or Marxist in any sense of the word, but it channeled a lot of the same frustrations. And so I think having a continued discussion about, yes, these are problems. Uh, race relations are, are very problematic in the U.S., but it's the underlying systems that enable these racist structures or these anti-labor structures to continue and to thrive while the average person suffers. So I think going forward, the left does need to recognize that we're going to face a lot of setbacks uh, electorally. We're going to keep losing. That's what we do in the left and in the U.S. It's just lose, 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 and then claw back a little bit of ground um, with actual people-powered movements. And if, if those get strong enough, if there's enough labor um, sentimentality, if there's enough pressure from below, then the politicians that we do manage to elect will be forced to, to act on our behalf, I think, at least a little better than they are now. So electoral politics is useless without actual uh, bottom-up movements. This is jumping around a bit, but on Patreon, Peter Manuel wants to know about, he lived in China, and he's interested in what he calls the new Cold War against China. The propaganda mm. war is hilarious, ridiculous compared uh, to the reality, and he's just interested in your take on that in terms of China and yeah. the left's position. Sure. Well, that's a big topic. Um, so China is an interesting one because obviously it is the target of the new U.S. Cold War. It's been brewing for a while now. Um, and it's it's obvious why. It's a, it's a budding economic superpower that is projected to surpass the United States um, economically in a very short period of time. So it makes sense that we're seeing the U.S. gear up for a huge propaganda campaign. Um, I I doubt we'll see any actual military action. I hope not. That would be disastrous. Um, but there's a lot of debate on the left about China's intentions, China's current state as a as socialist superpower, whether it's socialist, whether it's state capitalist, whether it's moving towards socialism. Um, I, when it comes to China, I generally defer to budding socialist movements around the world. So Bolivia, for example, uh, Evo Morales um, met with Chinese diplomats and was very supportive of, of the measures that China has taken to move towards socialism and is positive towards their relationship um, with other socialist nations. So while I think it is important for leftists to recognize any problems that we may see in, in other countries, um, socialist or not, I think it's far more important to listen to what workers in actual socialist movements and um, and in countries with a socialist party or elected officials um, are saying. Because we here in the West, I mean, we can, we can be armchair socialists all day long, but we have no experience, really, with socialist governance. And the fact that we are saying, well, you're doing it wrong, China, you should do it like this. I, I don't like to engage in that because they're the ones with the experience, They've got a long history of working towards socialism. Um, they've got tremendous support from their people. I'm sure they have the plenty of problems that are that are worth discussing um, from the left, but 
I think it's important that the left, we leftists look at or look to other socialist nations for guidance when it comes to relationships with places like China. But isn't the difference there? I mean, Bolivia's socialist government, which has achieved phenomenal things and faced yeah. right-wing sabotage, coups, I mean, you know, a horrific Pinochet-esque yeah. right. And, you know, I mean, you know, my, my, my family took in Chilean refugees in the 1970s who had been... Uh, who'd suffered the violent repression of yeah. the Pinochet regime, as as many families in South Yorkshire did. And there were other governments across Latin America, democratically elected socialist governments, and this so-called pink tide continues. It's mm. promising, for example, in Colombia, of all places, where a socialist uh, politician is ahead of the polls, mm-hmm. first time in history. Yeah. Uh, equally, there's big hope, of course, in, in Brazil, which is under the control at the moment of a horrific far-right yeah. uh, government. Um, China's a dictatorship, though, isn't it? I mean, isn't that isn't that the key difference? I mean, obviously, you might imagine, you might expect governments, elected governments in Latin America, to seek an alternative kind of uh, you know powerful ally, mm-hmm. given the United States and its history in Latin America of supporting violent overthrows of progressive governments. Yeah. But China today, I mean, if you look at, I mean, it's not just, I mean, you could, I think there is a case for looking at the forms of state management of the economy they have. There's a very blurred distinction between the private and the public sector, their state mm-hmm. investment banks, um, uh, and, you know, the state-directed economic growth that they have achieved and how they've reduced poverty. Uh, I think that's that's true. But equally, I mean, their income disparities are, the evidence is just higher than the West. And yeah. that's without even talking about the horrific situation which faces the weaker Muslims. So I don't know. I mean, isn't there a difference there between socialist governments which are elected and democratic and actually face violent, undemocratic right wings, even if they look to China as an alternative sure. power base? Uh, or, or powerful ally compared to the United States for, for very understandable reasons mm. without saying, well, actually, China, they're good. Yeah, I think it's it's a tough, uh, it's a tough discussion um, because, I mean, everything is, is an ongoing process and what we see in the U.S. is rapidly progressing in, in a negative direction and what we see in China arguably is going in a more positive direction. I mean, if to take the the treatment of Muslims, for example, between the two nations, between the US and China, there's, you know, highly questionable re-education initiatives where there's occupation and bombing and murder for 20 years. So one of those is worse, clearly. Like the US treatment of Muslims is, is dramatically worse. That's not to say the other is good, but yeah, I don't know what the answer is there. I, I think I think we need to be cognizant of a country's progress in in whichever direction it's going. And I I, I am critically supportive of China. I think some of their initiatives are very good: um, poverty alleviation, um, public transportation. Um, sustainable cities that they're building now. I have my problems with them. But without the 
existence of a superpower that fits all our criteria here in the West. If China is willing to support democratic socialist nations or budding socialist movements and not be coercive of them or meddle in their affairs like the United States does, I think that is a more positive approach um, than, than what the U.S. is taking, and I'm, I'm hesitant to condemn them entirely. Um, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, as you, you know, obviously we can see what the West has done in terms of the mass murderous interventions mm-hmm. in Iraq in which hundreds of thousands have died uh, in terms of uh, in terms of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. in terms of Libya, which essentially now is a failed state. Uh, the pro-intervention Atlantic Council recently wrote that, the, you know, themselves, a very hawkish organization, that the human rights situation and the general threats of violence to Libyans is worse today than it than it was yeah. under under Gaddafi. Um, and then there's the drone attacks in Afghanistan, and not just in Afghanistan, sorry, in neighboring in Pakistan, uh, Somalia, the US-backed Saudi war onslaught in uh, Yemen, mm-hmm. uh, plus the support of the Saudi dictatorship. Of course, that's true. I suppose it's just about a universalist consistency underpinning the left is is that we don't you know those are bad on their own terms and i'm sure like myself like yourself you've you've marched against them x number of times um i must have marched against u.s US led wars hundreds of times in my life but and we don't have power you know when people sometimes go against the anti-war movement oh i don't see you marching against china it's like well (laughs) we don't have i mean the power we have as citizens to organize exists over our own governments yeah yeah, I didn't even mention Palestine, the support, of course, military yeah. econ- and, and diplomatic for the Israeli occupation of Palestine and the consequent atrocities there. But equally, you know, we can look at, if, if particularly if we're fighting Islamophobia, I mean, China's rhetoric when they talk about the Uyghur Muslims is just war on terror type stuff. It's mm-hmm. Muslim fundamentalists, terrorists. Um, they talk about, you know, actually, you, know, you know, Tony Blair has applauded their operations yeah. against the Uyghur Muslims and justified it on the basis of the war on terror. Yeah. I mean, that for me is sufficient to <laughs> say. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose just uh, just just a couple of other things, really. On the, cli- the climate emergency, I mean, I suppose some people on the right, they hate, they, they see the climate emergency as, uh, they, they say, they use this watermelons. Like these are... Um, green on the outside, red on the inside, and they're secretly trying to hmm. um, ex- use this to basically agitate in favour of a socialist agenda by the back door. And I suppose that belies an insecurity they have that actually for me, it's, there was a striking con- collision between the needs of capitalism and short-term profit and yeah. the needs of humanity, including our future survival. And that will lead people to conclusions which include challenging capitalism. How much is that? What is that? What's going on? Do you think? Yeah, um, I think it's a little bit different here in the states in that we do have a subset of people that are fully convinced that it's a hoax, that climate change is not real, um, and that it's just a you know a government ploy to, I don't know, I, create some new world order. I've, I've lost track of of their schemes now. Um, but there is another subset of people that 
believe climate change is happening or maybe happening at least, but they believe it is entirely natural. You know, um, they'll use terms like uh, solar minimum and uh, coming out of an ice age and things like that. And that is fine. I mean, that's, that's better than the other camp that I mentioned, but the point that I, I try to make in my videos is even if you think that's the case, even if you think it's entirely natural, shouldn't we do something about it to mitigate the fallout? If, you're, if your city's going to flood, shouldn't we put up flood barriers or something? Shouldn't we have evacuation routes planned? Uh, shouldn't we look into investing in sustainable agriculture that will be resistant to a changing climate? And of course, they don't really have answers to that. They'll they'll say, well, that's it's not going to get as bad as they say. It's like it very clearly is. I mean, every report that's come out says, hey, we were we were a little off. It's it's worse than we thought, and that's been happening for decades. And this latest IPCC report should make that very clear um, that we're probably going to miss the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target, and we're probably going to miss the two degrees Celsius target. So. It is a crisis, um, and I think a lot of people are, are annoyed by the constant talk about climate change, um, which is interesting. But, yeah, I, I, there are, are different camps of people here in the U.S., and not many of them actually want to do something about it. Finally, I'm interested in the. I mean, circling back again to this, the, the, the generational divide that's opened up, because the traditional left understanding um of politics is is founded in class it's who's got wealth and power and who doesn't and what's complicated politics in i would say specifically particularly the us britain spain for example is an unprecedented generational divide has opened up in politics where um unlike as i've said you know, I mean, I gave other examples before. In 1968, the most pro-Vietnam War generation were under 25. The most mm-hmm. anti-war were the were the pensioners, often people who'd lived through lots of wars, so maybe they had a different take on it. But it's just this, this myth of you're young and left-wing and then you're schooled by the university of life and become right-wing. And actually, you know, a significant, the well, the, the big political divide you've seen opening up by age in the current era is actually unprecedented. Um mm. And Reaganism, you know, I remember studying this 1970s in the universities across America. A lot of the kind of right wing movement really gathered place in campuses across mm-hmm. uh, because I think a lot of people saw the 60s and, and early 70s, those big protests and thought those protests were representative. But most people didn't go to university and, and only a small subset were involved in those protests. So what what do you think is going on with that specific divide? And how much hope do you have that millennials and Zoomers can essentially achieve victory, political victory? Because at the moment, it's just a fact. There are lots of great older socialists Mm -hmm. and older progressives uh, who we should be very proud of. But it is just statistically the case. There is a generational divide that has opened up. So... What's your what's your sense of you, you know because there's a formidable block on the aspirations of younger people by just generational weight, but how what, how do you explain that divide? And what, what do you, well, I've, you've kind of already described that, but how how will it ever be broken? Do you think and and millennials and Zoomers yeah. achieve their political ends? Um, I think 
a big part of the problem is the internet. Um, you have people, you know, my parents' age, uh, born mid to late sixties, and they grew up grew up in a time without the internet, and the internet wasn't really even a thing until after I was born, when they were pushing thirty years old. So there's this fundamental misunderstanding of how the internet operates, how to use it, and how to determine what is accurate information and what is not. So you see these, you know, generally well-educated, kind, thoughtful, older people get on the internet and completely lose their mind. They turn into zombies and they have no idea what they're doing. And they'll just find the worst things and say like, oh, this is, this is crazy that this is happening. I'm like, that's not happening. So I think the fundamental divide there is that you have people who you know, were born around the, the onset of the internet who grew up with it more or less and might remember dial up and things like that, but know how to use the internet at a fundamental level. And then you've got the Zoomers who don't remember anything before the internet. They've always had it. It's their home and they know it better than the millennials. So I think the key as, as grim as it sounds is that those people who don't really know how to use the internet effectively and are who fall prey to really terrible stuff, they're going to start dying off here in the next couple decades. Um, and they will be replaced by people who know how to parse the internet, how to engage and interact and determine what's good information and what is not. And I think as that becomes more the case, as you have a more savvy um, elector or younger generation that, that, votes in elections and and gets involved in labor activity i think we're going to see some positive change there um i can't guarantee it i mean there there could very well be a a reactionary swing back to the right as um you know as as woke language takes over the united states there's a big push against that and i can i can see there being a, a big reactionary swing but hopefully hopefully we'll have enough of a foot in the door as the left to to introduce younger generations to decent information, actual history, um, the actual statistics about how capitalism works um, and how it doesn't work for, for people our age and, and those coming after us. Um, I think that's our best hope is that the older people uh, kind of fade out of, out of relevance and that You've got the, these people, um, people like us and people who are, are our age, who are engaged with, with left movements, really pushing that to, to the forefront again. That's, it's happened in the past before. We had a strong labor movement 100 years ago. We can have it again. And I think the Internet can help with that once we get rid of some of that, that ignorance. Thank you so much. We covered so much ground there. And obviously, everyone should follow your YouTube channel with your brilliant videos, which raise consciousness um, and agitate amongst the masses, which is great, which is what we want. Thank you. Uh, but thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got a lot out of that. And uh, do support us. Keep this, keep this all afloat on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 or one-off donation in the description of the podcast. Uh, and do subscribe, leave us some stars, spread the love, and I will speak to you soon. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.